Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Bilingual communities across the country are at a disadvantage when weather warnings are issued because the current infrastructure does not adequately translate the weather terminology into Spanish. Some progress has been made in recent years, but there's still a long way to go. Our next guest on Weather Geeks, Joseph Trujillo Falcón, is working to bridge the gap between weather warnings and bilingual communities. Joseph, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much, Marshall, and thanks for everyone for taking some time to listen to what really is such an important issue for many Americans across this country. It, it really is. And I, I, as we were talking before we started, I, I can't believe we are just now having you on the Weather Channel's Weather Geeks, but I am honored to have you because I've followed this young man's career for some time now. He's amazing. He's awesome. He's doing big things. And so we like to have uh, people that are doing big things in the weather community on Weather Geeks. And so we finally got him. Um, before I get into the meat of the discussion today, I'm going to give you the question that every Weather Geeks guest gets. How'd you become a Weather Geek? Ooh, well, that goes all the way back uh, to me moving to the United States when I was five years old. I, I'm originally from Lima, Peru. And well, you know, I've never even heard of what a thunderstorm was back there. We never really had that sort of weather. And moving to Dallas, Texas, the sky suddenly started blowing up. And I was like, well, what is this? <laughs> and I was so terrified of the weather that it led me to be curious about it. And so initially I wanted to go into bilingual broadcast meteorology just because I was so curious about what the weather even was and if there was, uh, you know, any way to kind of alleviate a lot of my worries. But you know what, Marshall, at the end of the day, it actually made me more afraid of it after getting the degree. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I love your description of the sky started to blow up for someone that perhaps came from a place where had, they had not grown up around thunderstorms. Uh, I, I really love the way you sort of described that that first experience with a thunderstorm that for me, even someone that grew up in the South, very much around them, that's a really interesting way of, of describing what must've been very uh, different experience. I, I can imagine I would feel that way uh, perhaps if I experienced a, an earthquake for the first time in California, I've never experienced really one. So I would, It'd be really interesting to sort of see how I would describe that as well. Let me give you a little bit of Joseph's background. As you heard, he immigrated to the United States from Lima, Peru at five years old, but he grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and has a bachelor's degree in meteorology and in Spanish from Texas A&M University. He is currently a graduate research assistant at the Cooperative Institute for Severe and High Impact Weather Research and Operations. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the acronym 
that people say these days uh, in partnership with NOAA's National Severe Storms Lab and the Storm Prediction Center. He's also a bilingual meteorologist for my radar and he chairs the AMS Committee for Hispanic and Latinx Advancement, uh, so one of 65 or so scientists involved in that effort. So again, a mover and a shaker in the field of weather and climate and a, a relatively young man here. Um, you grew up in Tornado Alley. I mean, Dallas-Fort Worth gets its share of severe weather and tornadoes. Is this where you first started to see the sort of enhanced level of weather anxiety in the bilingual communities or was it later? No, it was really just growing up. I was raised and very proudly raised in an immigrant community and realizing that a lot of my family members and community members had very similar experiences to me. They would describe things like the sky blowing up rather than it being it called thunderstorm overall. You know, when we come from these various places in Latin America and then immigrate to the United States, sometimes we might not be accustomed to the very hazards that we're trying to warn at the end of the day. And I realized a lot of this anxiety within our community, not necessarily because people did not know what to do, but really because there was no resources for these communities. Information, of course, in Dallas-Fort Worth, we're fortunate to have Univision and Telemundo stations uh, to provide that information for us in Spanish, but there's many areas across the United States where even to this day, they don't have a bilingual meteorologist in their local area. And that's what really captivated my experience and why initially I wanted to uh, follow through as a bilingual broadcast meteorologist to really give back to the community that, that raised me. But uh, I just started realizing all these inequities, even as a young boy growing up. Yeah, and, and you, you talk about this, and I, I spoke in, in the past with Nelly Carino, who uh, talked some about these issues. And, you know, I, wa I want people to understand this because, you know, there may be people here that do not speak Spanish uh, and don't understand some of the nuances here. Two things that I want to bring up to get your reaction to. One, uh, I understand that there are just some weather words and warnings and risk communication terminology that doesn't cleanly translate into Spanish. That's one issue. And then two, I understand that there are just different variances in terms of Spanish speaking in terms, whether you're from Puerto Rico, Peru, or Mexico, in terms of the variations and how certain things may translate. So you know, let me get your initial reactions to those things. Uh, totally. I first want to emphasize that our language is beautiful and diverse. And yeah, really, depending on how we were raised, where we come from, even our socioeconomic status, that really changes the way we speak Spanish. It really isn't a monolithic language. And that's what we call these regional varieties or these dialects of Spanish. And you know what, like here in the United States, for example, we have one singular way of saying thunderstorm. But for many of our Puerto Rican colleagues, they're taught the word tronada. But if they move to the United States, they're told, don't say that because nobody will understand you. And, you know, with our language being so beautiful and diverse, Whenever we consider it under the lens of emergency communication, that's where we need to be a little bit more concerned to make sure that all messages are unified and all communities are able to understand the given hazards, the given warnings, or the or whatever imminent threat we're trying to communicate to our audience. And so that's where translation really needs to be improved overall, so that we can consider those lens. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, you know, not just within uh, the National Weather Service 
or beyond, whenever we translate from English to Spanish, we really focus on translating the word and not the message or the meaning of the actual um, sort of message we're trying to communicate to the audience. And that's what we really need to focus on. That sometimes the words may not necessarily line up, but as long as we're translating that meaning or that message, that's ultimately our goal. And that's where we have to consider things uh, within Spanish dialects, within culture and beyond so that we can make sure that our risk communication is equitable for all. You know, and this, this, this is a compounded problem, Joseph, and I'm talking with Joseph Trujillo Falcone about bridging the gap and communicating weather risk uh, to Spanish speaking communities uh, in this country. Uh, uh, I think now the uh, Spanish Hispanic uh, Latin community may be the second largest um, sort of racial group in the country now, if I'm correct, um, uh, bordering 19, 20%. So one fifth of the population, if I've read my statistics correctly, uh, are, are in this country and may deal with these very issues that you, um, you are talking about. It's compounded by the fact that even for English-speaking people in this country, there's confusion about our terminology. There are people that don't understand the difference between a watch and a warning, for example. Or if you look at the outlook, the SBC outlooks, they go, well, what does moderate versus enhanced mean? So there are these things even in the English-speaking community that are challenges, and then you compound that when you're doing translation. Um, what are some of the things, I know you've been involved in some of the things within the National Weather Service, AMS, and others. So just give us a, a, a listing of some of the things that are ongoing to try to fix this problem. Totally. I, you know, a lot of the recommendations and projects that we've been working on have really been based in the social sciences, really integrating different parts uh, of our social science community. And so, for example, for our own Spanish terminology, we acknowledge that, you know, there's various translations out there and some may have more or may communicate more urgency than others. And honestly, at the end of the day, could, could you give us, because I, I keep hearing that, but I, could you give us a specific example of that? Because I just so from my own knowledge, I'm, I'm curious about what, what is an example of something that uh, in terms of the wording and translation, it may not convey as much urgency to say someone that speaks a different dialect. Yeah. Um, you know, one project that we initially worked on and what really inspired a lot of this work were the SPC risk categories, uh, just because whenever you translate them into Spanish, they don't communicate the same level of urgency than you do in English. And so knowing that, we wanted to integrate language experts uh, at the end of the day that understand the different varieties of the language and are able to give us at least a general understanding of what these different translations may mean for Spanish-speaking communities across the U.S. And they agreed. They looked at the terminology. They looked at the outlooks. They looked at how a broadcast meteorologist communicated it. And uh, the linguistic experts were expressing that the way that we are currently handling this one was it unified and two was based on that direct translation model and thus we were losing a lot of the message when translating it and so we came up with uh, recommended terminology working together with different practitioners uh, that are bilingual in this field along with the linguistic experts uh, into a recommended set of SBC rest categories and of course we didn't want to just end it there and say here's what we thought so let's implement it we wanted to verify it through social science research and and engaging a nationwide sample of Spanish speakers, a representative one too, based on recent U.S. Census data, we were able to actually verify that the recommendations um, resonated with the public. And 
it communicated overall more urgency to these people. And at the end of the day, considering our mission to save life and property, it really did uh, was able really one of the first times that the bilingual enterprise was able to come together and really embrace these terms. And, you know, as of just a couple of weeks ago, the SBC embraced it and put it into operations, which is something really exciting to see within our bilingual field uh, for, you know, for experts and then to be verified by the public, I really think is a great innovative way to listen to the people that we are serving to create effective voice communication strategies going forward. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Joseph Trujillo Falcone about breaching the gap in terms of weather risk communication Weather is something that is at the forefront of almost every household on a given day. It impacts every aspect of our lives. And as we are doing this interview in May, we're in the midst of severe weather season. Uh, There are many Spanish-speaking people that live in the regions of the country that experience tornadic weather, hail, gusts. There are many Spanish-speaking people that live along our coastal communities that experience hurricanes, and we are Uh, on the verge of the Atlantic hurricane season. So there's a sense of urgency here to this problem. Um, I'm curious as, I mean, again, you mentioned the SPC examples with the risk categories of the outlet categories and so forth. My understanding is that there have been efforts within the National Weather Service committees and other things. Can you can you talk about what some of those things are? Because it's not that we're starting from scratch. And I think a lot of your your influence and others have really moved the needle here. But the National Weather Service is, is thinking about this. Is that right? That is very correct. And really, Marshall, that's an important point to make that, that we're not creating anything new here. Really, Spanish translation has been existing in the Weather Service ever since the 1960s through the National Weather Service Puerto Rico. It's only been till recently where it's been getting a lot of nationwide attention to start implementing it all across the board. And so definitely want to acknowledge the pioneers in that field as they really paved the way for a lot of this uh, effort to ultimately succeed. And, you know, that's where it all started from, Puerto Rico. And initially, uh, you know, they were tasked 
on doing a lot of the translations uh, for the Hurricane Center and then even some WFOs. But of course, uh, as an operational meteorologist in the National Weather Service, that could be a lot of work in addition to your everyday work to also be able to translate. And so in the last couple of years, some nationwide teams that solely focus on translation have emerged within the National Weather Service. And those are two of them. Uh, one of them is called the Spanish Outreach Team, where they focus more on educational campaigns and creating graphics in Spanish uh, for the community. And then two, the Multimedia Assistance in Spanish Team, which is a team of weather service meteorologists that are able, if there's a media request, they're able to fill in and be able to give it in Spanish, in addition to even translating more of the short-term uh, forecasts, such as the warnings and the watches and things like that. And we've worked actively with both teams uh, throughout this entire process. But yeah, no, the, uh, the efforts have been expanding. And honestly, Marshall, in the next coming years, I really do hope that there's even uh, even more efforts to address these sorts of issues, like even at NOAA headquarters, just have not just in Spanish, but even a multilingual coordinator that oversees a lot of this, because as of this moment, it's volunteer based and you can only get so far with that. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask about whether you foresee this expanding beyond Spanish to other languages that are, I live in a county here in Georgia that's quite diverse, a lot of Spanish speaking, um, um, but also uh, Korean and Chinese and various others that uh, I don't know. And I don't know if there's been any study on whether these similar translation issues are, are there. I imagine that they are. Uh, but we're certainly talking about what the obviously the reason to start with the Spanish speaking community is such a large group of people within this country. Now, everyone's not on board with this. I mean, I, I saw you attacked on social media by a senior scientist in this field. And I mean, it's got, you know what I'm talking about. You know where I'm going with this because it got covered quite a bit. Uh, one of our mutual colleagues, Aaron Pena, shout out Aaron Pena, uh, called him out on social media um, because you were being attacked for this effort. Uh, is that the anomaly or uh, is there generally support for what you're doing? You know, within the weather, uh, water and climate enterprise, it really is an anomaly. I feel like a lot of people have been supportive of this issue. And, you know, when people go up and try to criticize these sorts of efforts, I always point them back to the weather service mission statement. And that is to protect life and property. But we need to emphasize that it is all life, that there should be no barrier whatsoever. And if that is our mission from the beginning, then these sorts of efforts should not be an issue altogether. And I think that's something that we can all unite around, that no matter where you come from or how you're raised or what language you speak, you are just as deserving of life-saving information than anybody else around you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the, the community response to that that attack and criticism that you received in a very public format, uh, the response was swift from all corners. And so I really want to thank the community for stepping to the plate for, for on that and, and, and your, on your behalf. Um, the Weather Channel has launched Weather Channel in Espanol. Have you had a chance to kind of consume that at all? And, and, and what are your thoughts on sort of the private, and because we've been talking about this really from a public sector perspective with the weather service, SBC and so forth, um, but the Weather Channel has kind of stepped up to the plate in this regard. So where, where do you see the private sector role? You know, I really do see them being a critical partner uh, throughout this entire process because the Weather Channel in Espanol, yeah, I saw their debut and are rooting for their success. And overall, like they are providing a whole 
that we have really been missing. As I mentioned before, even to this day, there are areas in the United States that do not have access to different uh, television programming in Spanish. Like, for example, it, whenever we conducted a field study from the December tornado outbreak last year, and um, we saw that Kentucky, for example, did not have reliable Spanish language programming, nor did they have a bilingual meteorologist that people can trust on. And so I really think the private sector can play a huge role in filling these gaps and being able to provide information to the most underserved. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Joseph Trujillo Falcone. Um, one of the things that you have been really active in with, is the AMS, the American Meteorological Society community. Uh, you I believe are on or perhaps even chair or have chaired the committee for Hispanic and Latinx advancement. Now, you know, I chaired in a previous uh, iteration of my time at the AMS, the AMS board on women and minorities. I think it has changed names or evolved into Braid mm -hmm. now. And I would occasionally get this, well, why do we need those special groups of within the organization? Why are you separating yourself? Why are we seeing color? I'm, I've, I've written a book on the answer to that, by the way. But um, we have to, you know, when I look at a tiger, I see the stripes on the tiger. That's a part of who that, that tiger is. And so we can't dismiss that or be afraid of it. But tell us why, if there's someone listening to this wonders why there is a committee for Hispanic and Latinx advancement within the AMS, why is that important and why is it needed? You know, I really want to just point to the numbers in those sorts of senses where, you know, nearly one in five Americans are of Hispanic and Latinx descent. Only nearly one in 20 represent the atmospheric science community. One in 20, wait, I want to make sure people got that. So when you think about AMS or a weather community, one in 20 are members. Oh, yeah. One in 20 are Hispanic and Latinx. And those wow. numbers do not line up whatsoever. And it's not just a matter of, you know, being able to provide a, a thorough education. It's we're talking representation here. We're talking having equitable access across the board, not just from the second you step into college, but even before that. A lot of our communities aren't raised in areas that, uh, that for example, emphasize a lot on the STEM factor. I mean, that's where how I was raised, really. And I came into college really nervous about not having the same sort of skill sets as many of my own peers in the classroom. And it made such a huge difference 
when I went to my first AMS conference to really see other people like me that went through similar experiences. You know, I have to give a huge shout out to my first mentor in this field, Nestor Flecha in Telemundo, Dallas, that, you know, I was applying for, we were doing a, a capstone project for high school. And I was asking all of the, uh, all of the stations in DFW to see if they could give me a chance. And all of them called me too young or not yet. And he was really one of the only ones that took me under his wing. And he showed me everything about meteorology. And it really gave me a, an opportunity and really a motivation to pursue this field. And that's all that it took. And, you know, he inspired a lot of what I do today in terms of language and being able for everybody to have information, uh, no matter where you come from or how you raise. And, that, you know, this is just one personal story, but I can only imagine as to how it extends. Because, for example, in a place like Texas A&M University, if you want to be a bilingual broadcaster there, of course, you're going to have to have a real in English and in Spanish. But there's no local Spanish language television program there. So how are you going to have the mentorship available? Who are you going to rely on in those sorts of cases, but other than yourself? It's no oh, surprise as to why a lot of these groups still aren't involved in the field as they should be, just because the resources aren't there and the people aren't building a community-wide effort to address it. And that's why these committees are so important, to elevate these perspectives, to provide support groups, and then also to even charter our own initiatives. A lot of these Spanish language initiatives would have not been possible if it wasn't without the collaboration of Chala, because I'm a fond believer of power in numbers. And when you bring out academia, broadcast, public and private sectors, and students all together, so much change to be done in such a quicker and a more efficient manner. Yeah, and I think a key thing to also add to that is these organizations, these committees, these groups, they their existence does not denigrate or downgrade anyone else. I mean, they're, 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 they serve a purpose very specific. Uh, I, I think that I, I've often found that there are some people that feel uncomfortable or even perhaps even threatened by these types of groups, and they shouldn't be. I mean, you know, you, you know I'm, I'm not threatened by my mom's book club. They're doing something I don't do, but I don't, I'm not threatened by it. Don't do your thing. So I, I think that's kind of how we have to think about these things. Um, what, what do you see, Joseph, as the future of weather communication in Spanish speaking communities? You know, translations is just really the first step in addressing this wider systemic vulnerability that a lot of Spanish speakers face. And, you know, we really experienced a lot of that uh, in our field study. We visited areas that were affected by the December 2021 tornado outbreak in Arkansas and Kentucky. And, you know, a lot of those factors really stuck out to us. And it was a, even a big eye-opening moment for me. Uh, we were able to engage a lot of Spanish-speaking and immigrant communities. And, you know, it goes back to really where this all started. You know, I came to the U.S. realizing that the sky blew up and sure, I may have know, uh, known of what a tornado was, but if I didn't know the implications of the true disaster, then it doesn't matter how things are translated. And it's addressing these cultural uh, perspectives in addition to all the other systemic vulnerabilities that hinder not just Hispanic and Latino communities, but also other underserved groups such as socioeconomic status. And particularly for Spanish speaking communities, it's uh, making sure that uh, 
throughout the disaster response process, everything's equitable across the board. You know, even in Kentucky, you had uh, th uh, things related to immigration that really hindered a lot of people from taking the basic fundamental steps that they should during disaster. And so really the work has only just begun in this area. And we look forward to addressing other vulnerabilities in the future. Two final questions. One, you mentioned Hispanic and Latino communities. For the listeners, what is the distinction between those two, or is there? <laughs> you know, there's been a really, from the census to really, depending on which person you ask, that definition has evolved. And, you know, I really always like, in terms of that terminology, I always kind of make sure and see who I'm addressing before choosing which specific one, because I always like to emphasize that before 1980, the term Hispanic wasn't even a thing in the US census. We were categorized as white. And really they were trying to come up with the terminology to unify the community, to give it resources and funding uh, locally. And that's where the term Hispanic was originated. But people were realizing that not a lot of people identified as Hispanic when in 2000 later on embraced Latino. But even to this day, there's people from this community that don't embrace that terminology either because, you know, it's hard to come under one umbrella when you come from different areas of Latin America with very widening cultures. And so at least for me personally, as someone that is Hispanic, is somebody that comes uh, from a Spanish-speaking country. So that could be like Peru or Argentina, but not Brazil, for example, because they mainly speak Portuguese. And that's where Latino comes in, somebody from Latin America. And that's why we like to include both, because somebody from Brazil, for example, belongs in this community, and we want to emphasize that, that it's not just based on language, but rather a set of cultures and values all across the world. Yeah. That's really one of the, more, the clearest examples I've, I've been given of the distinction. So thank you for that. Last question. You're a grad student. <laughs> yes. What are you working on? What, what, are you, what are you working on and when are you done? <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of work really is just focused on, on this bilingual risk communication. And it's what I want to do in the future, you know, uh, explore possibilities, you know, even within academia or even within the public sector, even private sector, really, to kind of advance this. Uh, I always tell myself at the end of the day, that's my mission to serve spanish-speaking communities and elevate their perspectives and so right now that's where a lot of the work has been in in just um in projects related to translation but i look forward to really digging into the other vulnerabilities as i just kind of uh, described them and then of course even look into other things within uh NOAA, NSSL, and CIRO, and all these other agencies. Like, uh, for example, really the first thing that got me funded was facets and the uh, exciting things regarding including probabilistic information into our forecasting and communication. I'd love to explore as to what that means for underserved groups. You know, even uh, studies in health communication show, for example, that uh, people, that Spanish-speaking communities are not... Um, at least as proficient in numeracy as other communities. And what does that mean for probabilistic forecasting across the board too? There's a lot of things to explore in that sense. And I look forward to being part of that team. Well, you know, anyone that has a mission in life is someone that's all right with me because many people don't have missions in life and you do. And I really appreciate that. 
uh, where can people follow you on social media? <laughs> on Twitter, my at is LatinWX. That's kind of a pun of Latinx and weather. So LatinWX. And on Facebook, I, through the My Radar channel, I do provide ling- uh, information in Spanish and really break down a lot of these hazards for our community. And uh, that is in Metrólogo Joseph Trujillo Falcón. By the way, what is, what is what exactly is My Radar? Is it an app or is it a service? Yeah, so My Radar is an app that it has been downloaded by 50 million users. And really, we provide information worldwide uh, to a lot of audiences and provide them with weather information, including the radar, of course. But we also provide coverage in English and in Spanish. And so a lot of this research has really, uh, I've been able to apply it and really been able to provide segments on different weather hazards, for example, you know, acknowledging that people may not understand the implications of disaster. A lot of my uh, Spanish coverage is really focused on really going back to step one and reviewing what that means, reviewing what the terminology really stands for, and then contextualizing it in the big picture. And so it's really been a a grand opportunity to bridge all of this together and and unite the community. and, And, you know, depending on where you're from or how you're raised, you at least have access to that information. Well, that's certainly where we have to end it today. But before we do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Jennifer Naramore. Jennifer is the owner of Tornado Talk, a website dedicated to preserving tornado history. She's built a community surrounding this topic because it is her passion. Now, if you or someone you know is a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much, Marshall. It's truly an honor. And I really hope that what people can take away from this is really that premise that life-saving information should be accessible to all. And that's where we'll leave it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time. 